Hello, everybody. It's so good to see you today. Um, we're here at MHTV and we're going to be talking homelessness today. And I'm quite interested to, to really get into the, the nuts and bolts of this issue with our fantastic guest. But before we do that, um, can we go over to Dave to find out how you can join in? And please, everyone, can you wish Dave a very happy birthday today? Oh, thank you, Nikki. Yeah, <laughs> 21 plus 20. Yeah, 41 today. <laughs> Uh, obviously, where could I better celebrate my birthday than on MHTV? Uh, it's great to be with you all tonight. And if you do want to get joined in, uh, you've got two options. One of them is to post on the Facebook live chat. Uh, and the other one is you can comment on Twitter. If you're commenting on Twitter, make sure you use the hash hashtag MHTV so we can see your tweets, other people can see them, and the conversation kind of makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, oh, back over to you, Nikki. Oh, fantastic. So let's go to Sam. Please, can you introduce yourself, Sam, and tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Um, yeah, so my name's Sam, um, and I have actually quite a few jobs. So I am nursing fellow for the Pathway Charity. Um, and the Pathway Charity is not dissimilar to Macmillan, um, but it lobbies for better quality healthcare for people experiencing homelessness um, and all inclusion health groups. So that might include, for example, Gypsy Roma Traveller groups, people in prison, sex workers, vulnerable migrants, all those kind of things. But um, one key thing that Pathway does is it does needs assessments for and sets up um, specialist teams in hospital that facilitate better discharge for homeless and inclusion health groups. Um, and I'm their lead nurse. So I do that three days a week um, and then one day a week um, I currently work for the Queen's Nursing Institute as their homeless health programme lead. I'm sort of filling a gap for them, although I've been doing that for two years now. Um, and in that role, I support nurses around the country who are in inclusion health roles, both in the community and in hospital, um, to set up services locally and link them in with the right networks and you know, make sure they've got the right guidance and stuff. And then lastly, um, sort of keep my hand in. I work for the Doctors of the World um, on a Tuesday on outreach in the city of London. So I work a shift basically seven till one. Um, and some of those clients are sort of chronic care refusers and they're on my caseload and I see them every week and obviously trying to trying to work with them long term to come up with resolutions mm -hmm. and there is a flow as well so I do see people that we manage to get off the streets quite quickly and then I pass them on so those three roles together sort of complement one another um, mm -hmm. and on the side I'm also secretary of the London network of nurses and midwives homelessness group which brings together nurses in London and midwives and health visitors in London <laughs> um, working in homelessness. Every time you, you tell me the list of things you do, I'm thinking that's definitely more than one person. That's definitely more than one person. Yeah, it's quite a lot of hours at the moment. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're just recruiting um, at the Q&I for uh, a three day a week post to sit alongside me. So, so that, will be, that will be very nice. Yeah. Yeah. So just to get sort of like a bit of context around what's going on. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the issue that's the, well, the many issues that are going on in, in homelessness at the minute? Because I remember you saying something like we had a 170% increase in rough sleeping at one point during the lockdowns. Yeah, that so that, that that's true. So obviously COVID has changed a lot, but, but prior mm. to COVID, mm. um, over the last 10 years, we've seen a significant increase in homelessness. And you're right, in London, that was a 170% mm. increase, but that's been pretty much mirrored across the country. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, austerity, welfare reform, austerity causing um, mm. hostel closures because of, you know, local, local authority cuts. Um, mm. Reductions in floating support has meant that um, lots of people have abandoned uh, supported accommodation. And EU migration has definitely contributed to that increase in rough sleeping. So... Mm. At the beginning of 2000, so 2009-2010, um, we had about 3,900 individuals seen over the year of sleeping in London. Just before COVID, it was 2,300 or something like that. So really significant mm -hmm. creep. Obviously, everyone in has changed things at the moment. And initially there was a clear mandate to bring everyone in and that meant everyone, mm. um, regardless of people, whether whether people had 
recourse to public funds, regardless of what their immigration status was. Mm. Regardless so when you say everyone in, you mean that, that that initiative that was to house people who previously weren't housed? Yeah. So, so get people hotel hotels rooms. were, you know, there, there was a clear mandate from mm. the Ministry of Housing and Local Government that everybody should come in on the 23rd of March last, last year, regardless of their eligibility to come in. Mm. Um, and that mandate, as it was, stayed in place for three months. Since then, things have been confused and 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 somewhat locally driven as to whether that everyone in mandate has stayed. But certainly during this time, there has been much more provision for people experiencing homelessness than they normally would be. And it's been a total revelation for mm. us just being able to most of the time meet a rough sleeper out and be able to bring them in straight away. You know, in, in, in peace time, so to speak, someone has to be verified three times. You know, they have to be seen sleeping out three times before you can bring them in. They have to earn that right. Whereas mm. at the moment, that isn't true. Um, mm. But that will revert back. Um, and all the derogations, so all the stuff around, um, you know, local authorities taking responsibility, temporary responsibility for people with um, you know, the wrong <laughs> immigration status, all of that is going to reverse. Um, mm. And it's really hard to know what we'll see at the mm. end of that. Certainly, some people have really benefited from everyone in. There have mm. been some people who it has resolved their, their issue in, you know, and being given a hotel room rather than a hostel, you know, mm. with, with good food and a smartphone and nice clothes and, you know, being treated properly and being given immediate uh, mm. access to mental health care and addictions care. We were in a whole different territory. Mm. For some people, that's made a major difference. Yeah. Um, for others, I think it made a major, dif major difference, but then they've been rehoused in private rented sector accommodation two hours away from their any connections that they've got so we have seen people you know filtering back mm. um and some people won't be eligible so we don't know where it, where things are um it's been an interesting learning exercise everyone in because um i think the key thing for me has been you know <laughs> treat people with respect they you know you treat people like adults funnily enough they behave like adults and mm. i think a lot of um, a lot of our services are set up to, um, you know, institutionalise and marginalise people still now. Um, um, so, as you can imagine, there's countless, you know, research projects looking at this. Um, yeah. But no clear sort of mandate saying, oh, we've got to change. You know, we've got to change. Mm. We've got to learn from this now and we've got to continue. Um mm. Well, it's a shame because different thing. countries do it differently, don't they? So there are some countries who absolutely house people as the first concern and then everything else flows from there. And then because I think we've been experiencing these cutbacks for such a long time, as you say, we've been making people jump through hoops a little bit to prove that they deserve housing, to prove that they, they, they're right for that. And that's been complicated. Yeah. So yeah. definitely our system which involves you know putting people in a homeless hostel for a couple of years and sort of mm. earning the right to support with accommodation then eventually mm. earning your right to independent accommodation mm. i mean as you can imagine it it brings people into contact with lots of other people that that have issues and also you can't work when you're in a homeless hostel the way the benefit system works um so there's there's all sorts of issues with it yeah. Housing first, I mean, it works very well in the Scandinavian countries. It works very well in, in, in parts of America. Um, and it's generally seen to be a much better answer to homelessness. Mm. Mm. So the key feature of the housing first model is not just housing, but it is um, intensive support for that first, you know, that first uh, probably up to two years um, mm. in accommodation and with, with small caseloads. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the UK, we've had some success with it, but there are definitely issues with the actual housing. So mm. 
you know, lots of the housing that is available. So, for example, in London, is is a very poor is a very yeah. poor quality and not in places where people want to live. Mm-hmm. And then you have a difficulty because your support worker might only have ten people to look after, but they're so dispersed and disparate that they can't really provide that that you know ongoing support in in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there's no question that there's a lot of belief that we should be changing to the housing first model and the um, mm. all-party parliamentary group um, on ending homelessness has spent the last three sessions, I think, talking about housing first and trying to influence that agenda. Mm. Um, Is it the financing that's standing in the way? Is that what the issue is? Was there any... I think housing. I think housing is a really, it's a really key problem here. Mm. Um, lack of quality, self-contained housing that people want to live in. And if you, mm. yeah. So, for example, if you look in Finland, where it's been incredibly successful, a lot of the housing first accommodation is is purpose built, and it's actually mm. really, really nice. And it's where somebody yeah. would want to live. And at the end of the day, and I think that was a real key learning for me from. From everyone in it's just if you put someone somewhere nice <laughs> you know there's a reason they're going to like it and and, and that's true of all of us isn't it mm-hmm. i mean i think a real um learning for me over the last year in the city um you know we have a number of people that, that don't want to come in and you know, they they mm-hmm. like living out in the yeah. city among the city buildings with the people that they talk to that come past and, and lots of the people you know, they compare the housing offer that they mm. know is available to what they've got. And it just doesn't interest them. It mm. just doesn't interest them because to them, you know, sleeping out on the on the riverbank is nicer. Mm. And to be honest, I, I can see that because, you know, some of mm. the accommodation offers that we have for people, mm. you know, aren't, aren't great. And they're probably not where I would want to live. So... So I, I, I do think lack of appropriate accommodation is is really is really key. Um, and I suppose I don't know. The other thing is, I mean, compared to it's not true in America, obviously, but compared to a lot of the Scandinavian countries, the scale of our homelessness is obviously m- more significant. So yeah. yeah, so to resource that kind of level of support would be would be expensive. Um, yeah. I mean, I was listening to um, the John Richardson podcast last night and it, it was just sort of, they were talking about um, the fact that, you know, when you when you look at the consequences um, of what that lack of having any um, excess bed capacity has been, mm. you know, the billions yeah. that have now been spent because we didn't have that bed capacity, you'd yeah. think that it would have made more sense to have run the health service not on a business model but mm. you know on a health model where you'd been mm. running at 80 percent bed capacity mm. so that you had that given the system um mm. so arguably we should be doing it but um housing first because it would make much more sense long term but mm. i suppose but the, the other thing 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 is that governments are four years aren't they and the what you see the benefits of housing first accrue over a much longer period of time, you know, yeah. as people settle down. So, you know, in terms of reduction in criminal justice, in terms of reduction in evictions, you know, all, yeah. there's, there's lots of things that you you don't immediately see the benefit of. And, you know, governments need, they need punch now, don't they? They need to say that they've saved money now. Yeah. yeah. So what, just, just for people maybe who aren't as familiar with, with the type of work they do, what are the health impacts for people who are who are homeless? What's what's the likelihood in terms of their well-being, the impact in their well-being? So, it's it's really hard to generalise, and it's really important to say that you know there's a whole variety of people that are homeless, running from you know people who end up rough sleeping to homeless families. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who are rough sleepers. Um, as you would expect, there's a very high incidence of mental health problems and a high incidence of addictions. Um, There's also a high incidence of chronic diseases, things like asthma, COPD, epilepsy, diabetes, all of those things. Um, And as a generality, 
access to care um, and concordance with treatment is overall lower. Um, so the consequences of that um, for rough sleepers is that we know there's some very poor uh, health outcomes, particularly for rough sleepers um, and average age of death. That's not life expectancy and it's really important to, to understand that, but average age of death for people who have homelessness identified on their death certificates at the moment for a man is 46, uh, 46 years old and for a woman is 43. Mm. And I believe that the last time that the average age of death in the general population for men of 46 was something like 1840 or something like that. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a really long time ago. Um, mm. Obviously, that's the sharp end, yeah. you know. But it's pretty we sharp see, though, isn't it? It's pretty sharp, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We see that the average age of death of people that, that die within the hostel system is still somewhere between 52 and 55. Um, so... So, yeah, it's really problematic. Um, and I suppose as well, just alongside the, the in, in particular looking at mental health, um, it's often it's often complex trauma rather than yeah. severe and enduring mental illness. But it's often complicated by yeah. brain injury, which can be traumatic brain injury or alcohol or drug induced brain injury. And then you've got other things like neurodiversity sitting on the top of that um, and often language literacy yeah. and all sorts of other complications and mm. those all of those things obviously make treatment of the other things you know really Pardon. really difficult yeah. now nutrition's uh, a big thing um in our families just just to quickly touch on families i mean yeah. a lot of a, a lot of homeless families are coming from migrants backgrounds so um we see other sort you know other sorts of health problems um mm. malnutrition i'm really sorry to say is you know still a big problem we see dental problems actually across all all uh, mm. areas of homelessness but you'll get particular things like vitamin d deficiency for example obviously across both groups um it's a higher incidence of infectious diseases things like hiv hep b hep c mm. in the homelessness community um so yeah, it's not um, the reason why there are inclusion health, physical healthcare nurses is because there mm. is a high physical healthcare yeah. burden and people mm. die. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So thinking about, I mean, you've got an extremely complicated issue and it also seems to be in flux at the minute as well, not just because it's a situation which is always complicated, but you were saying at this time of year, there's particular issues around funding. So and sort of like long-term future planning. Is that something you could just give a bit of clarity about? Yeah, so in, inclusion health services are Cinderella services, I, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, um, we've slightly shot ourselves in the foot, actually, by being a specialism, because yeah. to me, inclusion is everybody's business. And, you know, yeah. the core of everybody's job is to yeah. make sure everybody can access their service and make sure people can come back and that is what everybody should be doing and if everybody did that we wouldn't need to be here would we but um <laughs> but the reality of it is we do have these health inequalities across yeah. all of these groups yeah it's not prioritized and it's funded in a very piecemeal way and it's often funded by I say money that's found you know, down the back of the sofa, coming up to the end of March. Um, yeah. I mean, more recently, um, I, I, I can be a bit more vocal about that. And I do mm. think that any system, um, you know, which is funding in inclusion in that way is, is really, um, has really ought to be looking at itself. And actually, I think... One one thing that's really interesting is that um, there's such a narrative around you know, cost saving. Oh, you know, we're not doing this because you can't save money. But I just think, well, I'm sorry if you're only, if you're saying you'll only fund services to reduce inequalities if it saves money, then that's got to be discriminatory and yes. and wrong, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, so I think we need to change the dialogue and actually say it's not acceptable to be funded by money 
down the back of the sofa at the end. It does. It very much needs to be the core of what all of these mm. systems do. Um, You've really clear, maybe, clearly stated a situation, haven't you? You've got a complex system that takes a long while to sort things out. It's in flux. There's an opportunity to bed down and do something long-term and strategic. Mm. But all the time you've got this projects, you've got a lot of, it seems to me, reliance on voluntary pilot yes. projects, things that go from year to year to year. And that's going to only make things more complicated for people with the passion that you have to work in these populations. Yeah, lots of plasters on the system, lots of knee-jerk responses, to, as, we, as that's, which is what we're seeing now. I mean, obviously yeah. the health inequalities agenda has suddenly gone, oh, oh, mm. blimey, <laughs> we, we, we need to look after these vulnerable people that have been there the whole time. So mm. um, what I was saying to Nikki before we came on was that mm. at the moment we just seem to be inundated with all of these suggestions of, oh, you know, can you use this 10 grand here, this 20 grand here, whatever, to improve things. Mm. And the answer is, yeah, of course we can, but that isn't the way that you should be looking at it long term. And mm. and obviously we've got to try and mm. you know, reverse the narrative. I say not not just to um, to that, but also that is everybody's. You know, this this needs to be absolutely yeah. the core of what all of your yeah. services, and you need to be funding all of your services mm. in a way that they can think in a more outreaching you know, engagement, inclusivity yeah. kind of way. And that needs to be the core, the, the core message, really. Mm, absolutely. So what sort of things are we doing at the moment? What sort of things are ongoing in the world of, sort of giving support and, and working with this population and this issue? Uh, so, so, so obviously there are there are people like me who go out. Thank goodness, onto, yeah, mm. who who go out onto the street um alongside outreach teams to acti actively engage rough sleepers and mm. for some of those people i say we can bring them straight in and if we bring them straight in then obviously a key thing is to engage them with a mm. gp practice mental health services addiction services before before you before you leave them mm. the people that people just aren't homeless for no reason are they you know, there's, 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 no. there are things that prevent somebody from maybe re-engaging or maybe accessing mm. services, and that stuff is needs to be factored in as well. You very, you very rarely find anybody that's homeless that doesn't have quite a lot of of, of support needs, um, mm. wherever they've come from. Um, mm. Yeah. So, so you, you link people in, but for some people, you can you, you can link them into mainstream services, um, and they will be able to to cope and access those services on their own. In other cases, we might link them into so there's a you know, lot of peer support organisations in homelessness. So we might refer somebody to some peer support who would then help that person to access primary care, addictions, mental health services. For people that don't want to engage from a from a rough sleeping point of view, um, then it's the job of people like me to to, to keep going and try and work out why, mm. um, yeah. what the reason for that is. Obviously, whether that person's got mental capacity, and that can be quite difficult mm. Um, mm. because they don't want to engage with a capacity assessment. So mm. you know, often it takes long periods of time to do that. But even when they do we can demonstrate they've got capacity there's mm. still self-neglect and yeah. so at the moment I've got two people going to the court protection because they don't have capacity and one going into an inherent jurisdiction because um, they have capacity but their legs in a pretty pretty poor way and they've had five admissions previously and you know it looks like it's going septic and they're older and you know we are going to need to effectively dulls them from from the community mm. so so that's one thing um we have much larger sort of community nursing teams district nursing teams if you like but specialist district nursing teams that go on an ongoing basis into yeah. hostels and day centers um and provide all the mainstream primary care including taking yeah, regular bloods, doing vaccinations, doing cervical screening, but on mm. outreach. Um, we obviously have specialist mental health teams and yeah. 
Um, most recently, we have Ramp Teams. Do you know, I can't, rough sleeping I'm assessment. I'm loving the name. <laughs> rough sleeping assessment, I can't, I can't remember the name. And what's been really interesting about those is that um, pre-existing specialist mental health teams we've had have still been very much focused on severe and enduring mental illness, whereas the new RAMP teams are really not diagnosis focused. They're, okay. they're, they're focusing on function. So lots of the people that we would previously not have been able to get supported by them um, mm. who have complex trauma and possibly dementia and, yeah. and neurodiversity and whatever now in. Um, and that's brilliant. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't why. Again, it's another of those weird things, isn't it, where we're trying to fit people with complex yeah. needs into us into a very structured and excluding, exclusive, exclusive? excluding system and then wondering why they can't get into it instead of just saying oh here are the problems or here are the things we have that can help you it's, it's really wagging the dog all the time it's very yeah. weird we have lots of specialist nurses that work in very, with very specific communities as well mm -hmm. which are not that may or may not be homeless but but so for example yeah. we have specialists working with sex working communities that obviously yeah. have specialist skills around uh, contraception and complex trauma and, and yeah. all of those kind of things um yeah. and um you know issues in terms of the the bereavement and trauma of having children taken away and and all of those kind of things um lots of gypsy roma traveler voter people wouldn't see themselves as homeless um yeah. but some some do some don't and obviously some of it depends on how um transient they are but there are a lot of similar issues in terms of access to care um, and the attitudes that people that people face. So we would probably, broadly speaking, see ourselves as the same community and yeah. uh, specialists and people working in home office hotels. Yeah, and, and people, then we. Got, I'm amazed by how rude people are. Did you see? I'm sure you saw the stuff when people were saying, "Should we give vaccinations to people who are homeless?" And you're like, "How was yeah, that was a debate? How was that?" <laughs> There was a, um, I don't know whether anybody saw it, uh, the, the mail online, um, mm. at the beginning of the, so they moved, essentially, every, in London, they moved everybody into tier, everybody in inclusion health groups into tier four um, at the beginning of February, very much mm. led um, the agenda on that. And I know mm -hmm. that actually they ended up in tier six at the end, but in London, that decision was made. Mm. And um, shortly after that, um, a hotel near Heathrow, um, which was um, had lots of asylum seekers in it that had been dispersed from mm. um, yeah, overcrowded previous home office accommodation. Mm. Um, the Mail online article on it is an absolute classic. Do have to have a look for it. <laughs> it, it, it you know, it's um. It's a thing to behold, and it, you know, it's it's what they're, they're interviewing someone. This might, this I can't remember what they call him, but this person who's boasting about him and all his mates getting their vaccine before everybody else, and it's just, it, it you know, it's an exercise. Ex, it's a very divisive exercise, and it's uh, an exercise in, in, you know, making more divisions. So, mm, so yeah, and then um, we have specialist teams working in hospital, and and the reason for that um, is the idea is to to try and break the cycle to to maximise the benefit of the admission. So rather than getting people out immediately, just thinking about okay, so I mean, hospital care is notoriously siloed and the acute. You know, somebody yeah. will come in with a cellulitis of their toe and nobody cares that they've missed their TB appointment or their hep C appointment yeah. or they're not engaged with mental health services or anything like that. Mm. So the idea of the pathway teams is to to use that admission and really mm. try and unpick everything that's been going on um, and, and you know, follow that person up into the community and make sure they're, they're, they're linked into services. And those mm. teams are multidisciplinary um and so we see a, a lot of um so for example mental health practitioners in them but mental health ot's and also mm -hmm. physical health ot's um social workers to rule that they, they tend to be really multidisciplinary teams and for some people they mm -hmm. can make a massive difference mm -hmm. there's also um in various places around the various bands 
you know, we're seeing more vans now. Um, and also another thing that alongside the pathway teams, there's um, around the country, a growing number of step down services for mm-hmm. people experiencing homelessness from, from hospital mm. in order to be able to support that ongoing work. Um, yeah, it's quite confusing as to who funds that and yeah, because yeah. there's a big argument in, in, in mainstream intermediate care, in elderly care, mm. it's very clearly seen as health responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas here, somehow there ends up being an argument as to whether it's local authority or health responsibility and that can make things quite tricky. Um, <laughs> well, I'm particularly enjoying your understatement tonight. Can I yeah. just say that I think I think you have an Olympic skill in letting letting it be understated. So let's let's just grab Dave in a little bit as well here. Dave, have you got any questions coming through? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the first one kind of links in uh, on a theme of the, the the COVID vaccination and how some people feel that people who are homeless are either unworthy or less worthy than other people. Uh, and it's this sort of how the narrative of strivers and skivers further entrenches kind of dodgy national policy uh, Mm. and that kind of people who succeed are people who try hard people who fail are people that are skiving and I suppose have you got any kind of thoughts or comments about that narrative with people who are homeless? I'd be pleased to hear that um, uh, our new sort of lead for her but health inequalities is saying there's, there's there's no quality without equality, so that's that that is really good. Um, so I mean, there there was a national inclusion health board and that was disbanded in 2013, but hopefully we're seeing the reintroduction of that. So hopefully the NHS won't have that narrative because it does. Because I can go because I can tell you that it, you know you go to a lot of A and E's and there's a lot of poor attitudes even within NHS staff. Um, oh gosh, why do people other people people experiencing homelessness? Um, because they don't have exposure to talk to people. They just they just don't know, do they? Um, I suppose um, they're not. Skivers or scroungers, or um, I mean, as 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 Nikki was saying earlier, um, you know, I've I've met none probably over the many 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 years I've been working in this sector. You know, uh, uh, people have got a story to tell, and 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 they've got they've got problems. And I suppose one of the key things that we did we did, we did a big um, uh, health needs assessment during COVID. And one of the, the quite heartrending things was that one of the most notable things that came out of it when you asked the question, you know, do you have someone to turn to when things get bad? And about 80% of people said no. You've got a very isolated, unsupported population, people who don't have anybody to go to. Um, and you know, that's a really vulnerable and very difficult position to be in. Um I don't know if I've got any ideas from the from the audience as to how to, to change the narrative. Yes. So, I mean, what Pathway does um, is we have an Experts by Experience program um, and lots of big organisations do. So I do lots of, for example, parliamentary lobbying and I wouldn't do any of it without taking an, experts by exper- an expert by experience with me. So mm. no matter what the topic is, if it's, you know, a homeless family that's been moved five times during the pandemic, that's actually happened we're going to take them with us you know if it's someone who's been denied access to registration at three gps we're going to take that person with us obviously people need support mm. to do that and equally the opposite so on the um later this month um we've we got a long-term somebody who had a long-term history of homelessness been on the streets um, for a very long time, also 15 years in prison previously, um, had been denied access to uh, elective hip operation. And um, we've got him through it and he'd been complaining over many months of pain. Um, and he's done really, really well. I mean, I have to say, I'm surprised at how well he's done, but he has done really, really well. He's still in accommodation, he's pain-free mm-hmm. and he's coming to talk to the Royal College of Surgeons Um uh, conference on on the twenty sixth alongside me, just mm-hmm. to because because I, I think another thing is um, a lot of people in the NHS, for example, aren't exposed to what 
what a difference it can make yeah. if you are nice to people and you do do the right thing in the right way. Um, actually, there, there is another thing, which is that I suppose quite a lot of people that are on the street begging mm. aren't, I, I, I hesitate to say, say this, but aren't necessarily the people most in need. Mm. Of, of, of the, the people that I work with often aren't aggressively begging. They're not. They're not there. They're often quite withdrawn. You know, they've they've got a lot more problems. So, so I guess people's exposure to also to people experiencing homelessness can be from a quite quite small section of the population who are often very acutely addicted, um, and thus, you know, acting in a certain certain way. Yeah. I suppose one of the things as you're talking there, you know, I, I do wonder how often people think, you know, it, how difficult it is to become poor and to become, you know, really poverty stricken. Uh, mm. And I wonder for those that have suffered badly through COVID, you know, have had secure jobs previously, but have lost the jobs through COVID and have seen how really poor the benefits system is, you know, that, that kind of wake up of realising, you know, that, we're, you know, many of us are kind of one or two, you know, paychecks away from, you know, from poverty or from, you know, getting towards poverty and 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 hope. Well, hopefully, if we learn anything from this, there will be some realization of that. I suppose a, a subsequent question to that is, kind of, how does the benefit system help or hinder with homelessness? You know, does it kind of make it worse, or or does it have any protective impacts? come back to that in a minute on 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 the first thing that you said so yes we've seen a lot of people i mean obviously there's supposed to be an eviction ban um but particularly around october november december time we saw a lot of people um being evicted who weren't in formal tenancy agreements and in in a lot of cases in london you've got multiple occupancy accommodation you know places like you know classically where they found you know 26 people to a three-bedroom house where people are paying lower lower rents but they don't have form you know don't have formal tenancy so we have seen a lot of people on zero hours contracts in a gig economy who don't have formal tenancy agreements coming out onto the street yes that's 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 absolutely true um for most of us are we a paycheck away i don't know because we've got support networks haven't we and that's what makes you know that's what makes some of these people different they haven't got support networks but we're certainly not far away um the benefit system i mean it's pretty impenetrable these days isn't it (laughs) you know actually doing a benefits application you know like like everything um takes uh takes grit and determination doesn't it um literacy language skills um credit on your phone actually having a phone in the first place um having an address or knowing that you can use a care of address um so there's that aspect of it um, yeah, there are problematic aspects of the benefits system. Um, the change over to monthly payments from weekly yeah. payments wasn't right for everybody. A lot of people. Mm. Um, in terms of PIP, um, for the move from, from DLA to PIP, that there have been issues of that, and obviously, it's, you know, some people with disabilities, for example, um, have, have suffered under that transfer. I suppose the biggest thing for us is that um, lots of people don't know that they can apply for PIP, um, personal independence paper, I should say, for anybody who's um, not not aware of that. And sometimes we'll end up supporting people with their application. Um, it takes a long time. And then they'll end up getting a back huge back pay as one payment. Um, and sometimes that's not the best and most productive thing either, particularly if someone's got um, addictions problems. Um, and I do think that could be managed better. I think they're absolutely entitled to the money. Um, but I think that, you know, the way in which that was filtered out. Sanctions, uh, incredibly unhelpful. Um, 
you know, you, you know <laughs> but yes. particularly on our climate, you know, there are lots of really, really viable reasons why why people can't turn up to their appointments. We, you know, people who are homeless are incredibly busy often. You know, they've got appointments to go to all over the place with key workers and housing support workers and stuff like that. And, and you know, often their mm. executive capacity, their ability to plan, all of those kind of things is, is, is affected. And they just get sanctioned. Less money, more reasons to go out and rob or beg or whatever. Um, and finally, I always give very long answers, don't I? Um, obviously, people leaving prison who don't get their first universal credit payment for five weeks, that's just a massive own goal. And I, yeah. I, I, I still can't get my head around that. It makes no and, sense at all, does it? And it uses up, um, you know, key worker time, applying for emergency payments. It's just the whole thing's just, I don't know, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and just one last question, which is a really sharp question. Uh, are any areas doing well? <laughs> in what? In terms of what? In terms of service provision, or I suppose to, I suppose in terms of homelessness, and I I kind of I think of this, you know, in terms of being someone that lives in Greater Manchester and hearing okay. uh, homelessness spoke spoken quite a lot about by our yeah. metro mayor. Okay, uh, Manchester's not doing too badly. Um, so I suppose that the, the two areas I would immediately pick up on, or maybe three would be, um, I'm going to go for Bradford um, and then Brighton and then probably Plymouth. Um, Bradford, their specialist, they, they have a specialist practice, but you know they've got a very strong vision on that. And that specialist practice does the work in the hospital. It's also got a 14 bedded step down. It's also got... Uh, a street outreach van. It's also got a recovery and well-being centre. So we, with all sorts of, you know, from yoga to employment advice or whatever. So it's got a really sort of holistic wraparound kind of service yeah. that that also supports all people experiencing. So you, you know anybody who might need a bit of extra support about learning disabilities or you know whatever would, would would be in so it's not niche so i would say that is a generally believed to be an, an excellent service um brighton has a similar sort of model um with the additional so they um anybody who comes out of hospital in brighton so they've got that that service but they've also got People getting it at six months um, of floating support, just just literally by virtue of having been in hospital to to help them with any you know with anything. Um, I picked Plymouth just because there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of people been doing brilliant things. For example, with vaccination, and uh, you know they're a small area that's been lobbying lobbying to improve things a lot over a long period of time. Um, but, you know, they've really grasped the opportunity um, and they've been running events with bringing in dental and the street vets and, you know, the food banks and getting everybody together in one place. But also um, steel bands and entertainment and just you know, like, you know, having a little bit of, of everything there. And they've still been managing to do that with the COVID guidelines, but, you know, really doing everything they possibly can to make it nice. Um, so they yeah, link all this together, aren't they? It's like if you meet people where they are, help them with the problems they've got, and treat them like human beings. Oh, I think it seems to work quite yes. well. And that holistic yes. idea as well: the things that you want are the things that other people want. So to, to not just have a roof, but that you have connections and meaning and purpose and fun. Those things are normal for everyone to want. Absolutely, and one of the key. Saying. Uh, one of the key things I struggle with on outreach is when in those conversations where they might go, well, would you want to live there? And it's, it's you know, and basically yeah. what we're offering is a, a room above a shop in Thornton Heath or something. And apologies to anybody who lives in Thornton Heath, <laughs> by the way. I'm sure it's very nice. But um, <laughs> I mean, for somebody who's living maybe in the, Gherkin, the park by the Gherkin, you know, that genuinely... I can see it's like, why would you want to do that? Okay. Um, 
It's very, very difficult. Empathy, isn't it, for people as well? Just having some empathy. And we are and, getting a bit near the end of this, actually. We have whizzed into 44 minutes already. Did you want to just finish your thought there for a second? And then we'll just yeah, that was, that more was questions. Just, and another thing, you, you talked about loneliness. Another thing that people talk about who don't want to come in is they love the random conversations that they have when people are, you know, are walking past and stuff. Not, not the ones where someone gives them money or whatever. It's not that. It's when, when someone stops and just, you know, randomly chews the cup with them and, and passes the time of, of day. And um, so the additional thing is that I think people see accommodation as quite isolating. Sometimes, you know, they, they yeah. know that they're going to get abandoned. But being seen, pick. it's so fundamental, isn't it? Not just being looked at, but actually being seen and having somebody connect with you and care about you. It's just it's just so obvious, isn't it? When you put it like that, how is that not something that we do better? I want to set up therapeutic communities in farm, you know, with, with farms, cats and dogs. <laughs> People experiencing like homelessness, like all of us love dogs and cats, animals. The one of the guys that last night was is feeding the foxes and the and the and the baby mice. Um in a therapeutic community with a debating area as well, because people love to debate. Um and that's where I'm gonna go and work. Well, I'll tell you what as well, we're about to get a lot of homeless dogs coming up, aren't we? Yes. It was in the if the news is uh, to be predicted. So I think I've got a couple of questions that have just come in from um, students. So one is asking, um, you're passionate about what you do. How did you know what you wanted to do? How did you know you wanted to go homeless, I think is what they're asking. Their third year. So I guess that this is a question on their mind right now. How so, did you know what, what flavour nurse you wanted to be? <laughs> so the honest, so I originally applied to be a mental health nurse. Um but changed in the middle of my course because I wanted to travel mm. um, and thought that the physical health care nursing would be more relevant uh, or more useful to me. I don't know whether that's actually true, but um, I, I thought that might that, that might be true. Um, I went to Australia and um, worked in Aboriginal communities and then I went to Nepal mm. um, and worked for, for six months there. And I think what I learned by that, because I, I, you know, sort of grown up in that I want to save yeah. the world kind of mindset, mm. um, was that actually you can't really save other communities. I mean, if you're going to do that, you've got to be in, you've got to be a part of that community. You've got to be in, embedded yeah. in it. You've got to sort of talk the language, and, and you know, and it, it's a you, you've got to commit your life to it really. Um, and I, you know, witnessed particularly in Nepal, people driving around in their four by fours, having a very nice life doing development, really, but not really, yeah. really changing the dynamics. Yeah. So I came home a bit disillusioned and I was literally walking along the Queen's Road, <laughs> pondering what I was going to do because pre I'd, previously I'd been in A&E and I saw somebody rough sleeping and went, ah, oh. <laughs> oh, there's people in need in my own country. It's just, mm. and I had, just rang up what was then the um, homeless team in the south of London and and got a job. Um, so, uh, how did I get the job? I just rang up and asked for one. So don't <laughs> don't feel don't feel frightened to make yeah. contacts. Find out yeah. where your local team is and yeah, make friends with them. Go and mm. go and volunteer, or say can you shadow them or whatever, because it will make a massive difference. Um, and you know, the key qualifying factor for doing this kind of work is your, is, is is the right attitude and wanting to learn, um, and people will see that in you. Um, yeah. But other than that, there's no, there's no like I don't know. Well, there isn't really got any qualification to do. Um, mm. it, it it it's having the will to do it. Um, and um, and it's a major privilege to do the work because you yeah. just every single day you just hear the most extraordinary stories from people the most extraordinary stories that still and I love all the time as well um, people's spirit is incredibly strong um, yeah. and it's a very different job to um, so I did do I stint. Um, as an A&E nurse practitioner um, in the walking centres where you've got seven flus on the top from the worried well. And it's a country mile from that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. 
I think that's actually a pretty good place to leave it, actually. And that's it's so lovely to hear people who, who love what they do. If you've got any last things that you want to say, please do. Otherwise, we'll go over to Dave and see if he's got anything to finish up with. Is there anything you want to add, Sam? No, I would probably just say wherever you are, whatever you know, whatever role you're in, just think about who can't access your service, um, and think about is there anything that you personally can do to help and facilitate that because you'll be making a massive difference if you do. Thank you very much, Dave. Is there anything you wanted to say? I suppose just to say, you know, obviously listening to Sam speak tonight, you know, really inspirational messages uh, and, you know, a really a brilliant speaker. And I suppose it's not surprising at all that she was the, well, I suppose it was surprising that she was the runner-up uh, <laughs> British Journal of Nursing, Nurse of the Year. Uh, from what I've heard tonight, I think she should have been the winner. Uh, but, you know, absolutely, you know, uh, really impressive to hear, hear you speak. Mm. Uh, I'm also going to use that for a cheeky little segue that next week we do have the winner of the Mental Health Nurse of the Year at the oh. British Journal of Nursing. Uh, so we'll share information about that about after tonight's episode. But I'm sure, you know, she will share. Yeah, brilliant. If you watch along, Sam. Uh, but yeah, that, they're my final thoughts, Nikki. In that case, happy birthday to Dave again. And thanks so much to Sam for um, her time tonight. Really appreciated it. And good night all. Take care. Good night.